What is love? Where does it come from and what is it for? If you think you've got that figured out already, then I suggest you read the story that we're going to be covering in today's episode. It's called The Sanctimonious Cobbler and it's by Wang Yi, who has cropped up once before on this show. We looked at one of her short stories from the anthology The Book of Shanghai, but now Wang Yi is getting her own episode. Also returning, in a sense, to the podcast is my guest for this episode, Lehila Heward. She's coming on to talk. She, she, in fact, chose this story. That's why we're talking about it. So you'll have that to look forward to. But first, we have the Church of Fig News, the translated Chinese fiction news. So we have four news items today. I'll try and shoot through them, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. So the first one is a newsletter that you can sign yourselves up to. I don't know how new this newsletter is, but I newly heard about it. So it's called the Arc E newsletter. It's it's run by someone called Louise Law, and it provides updates on Hong Kong literature and its publication, translation, promotion abroad. That's it basically. So if you're interested, there's a link to that in the show notes. Next news item. Again, this is something that is not new per se, but it's newly joined Twitter. It's Durham University's Centre for Contemporary Chinese Studies. They picked perhaps a slightly odd time to join Twitter. I hope they've op- I hope they've I hope they've opened up an account on a Twitter parallel, or at least have some kind of contingency plan for the downfall of Twitter. But I guess we'll see. That's all for our second news item. Just a short one. Our third news item. This one is pretty cool. I'm quite happy about this one. A former Lushun haunt has been restored to its former glory. So if you've ever been around the sort of Lushunified area of Shanghai's Hongkou district where he and various other leftists, revolutionary, forward-thinking, modern, blah 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 blah, progressive writers of, of his time uh, lived and wrote and chatted and gathered, um, it's in that sort of area. When I was living in Shanghai, it was a Xinhua bookstore and it did apparently have a little mini museum about this original Uchiyama bookstore inside, but it's now been restored. So if you're thinking Uchiyama doesn't sound very Chinese and in fact sounds Japanese, you're right. It was uh, run by a Japanese guy living in Shanghai at the time. Hongko was the sort of Japanese uh, run area. I don't know if it was referred to as a concession, but essentially it was sort of a Japanese parallel to the um, like the French concession and the Anglo-American um, concession. And yeah, it's it's been re-Uchiyamified. I've linked to three places where you can see some pictures of it and read some info about it. There's the Twitter account of Tinguo Writes, uh, and then there's two actually state media outlets have published news about this, China Plus and Shine. So yeah, it's interesting, you know, Presumably, we know the government must have had some look in on this because Xinhua is a state-owned company and Xinhua has, it seems, ceded this bookstore to be sort of Japanified in a way, although of course it does have the um, leftist cred of uh, Lushun or the sort of genealogical um, May 4th to CCP pipeline cred there as well. So yeah, an interesting one. If you're in Shanghai, please do visit. Please do send photos of it over. That would be amazing. Okay, final news item. This is an announcement of a planned pair of publications. So the first is, actually, they're both from the same publisher. They're both from Two Lines Press. So Two Lines Press has announced they're going to be publishing a translation of Xu Zichun's Beijing Sprawl and a reissue with a nice new cover that matches Beijing Sprawl of their running through Beijing, also by Xu Zichun. 
I know that Running Through Beijing was a Eric Abrahamson translation. I'm not sure if Beijing Sprawl will be the same. I'm just opening up the tweet right now. No, this one is a joint. So this new one will be a joint translation by Jeremy Tiang and Eric Abrahamson. That's pretty cool. So well done to both of you for bringing out more Su Chun into the English language uh, bookshelf. That's marvellous. That is all our news items. So I will cease my solo ramblings and you'll get to listen to me chatting to Li Hyla about Wang Anyi's novella and we'll indeed be talking about what even is a novella. So enjoy. So on the show, we have a returning friend of the pod, Lihaila Heward. Fantastic to have you back, Lihaila. Uh, what have you been up to since last time when you came on to talk about, let me see, Radish by Moyan? What's happened since then? It's very good to be back. I'm happy to be doing this again. And it, I kind of can't believe that it's already been two, almost three years since we last recorded, which is crazy. <laughs> and a lot has happened. Um, when we recorded, I had just finished my PhD. And this was like March of 2020. So it was right before everything went down. In fact, I think we even talked about how there was a virus happening but like no lockdowns had happened outside of China at that point and Shit. now we're in a situation where the only lockdowns happening are in China <laughs> again so it's like a weird turn of events in that way but um right after we spoke last time literally days I was on a plane to Taiwan escaping New Zealand's um first 48 hour no first I was 48 hours away from their first month, month long lockdown, um, got to Taiwan and actually had to like sleep in my friend's car because you couldn't just like get into a hotel room without going through quarantine. So I had a whole thing in Taiwan. I ended up being there for about six months. Um, but then I got hired at the University of Malta to be a lecturer in Chinese studies. So then hopped over here to Malta in September 2020. And I've been here since then. Um, learning, learning how to be a lecturer. <laughs> that's that's just mental. I actually did not listen to our our previous episode together as prep for this one, so mm -hmm. I totally forgotten the um, where that one landed. Re coronavirus, but I have re-listened to one or two from. Well, I guess it's quite a large window of time, really, the pandemic. But all of those um, points in the conversation are very interesting little time capsules. Definitely. I I didn't re-listen to that one too, but it's funny that you say time capsule because I have this memory of you saying that at the time. <laughs> Ugh, creepy. <laughs> so your um, place in the world has changed pretty dramatically, like you yeah. said. Uh, you're still working in and around Chinese literature. So yes. how, if at all, has your appreciation of or relationship with Chinese literature shifted since then so like I've read a lot more and I've talked a lot more about it mm. but how about you I same same I think teaching has given me an opportunity to really dig into um certain well certain authors works and even theories or or critical discussions that I hadn't fully like engaged with before I had I would say I had a deeper than cursory knowledge in that I had to do a master's and PhD about these things, but 
there were things that I had still sort of missed out on, especially in terms of Chinese literary thought. And so I would say a lot of what my teaching focus has has centered on in the last couple of years is me trying to put into words that sort of like critical tradition in Chinese literature, um, and then trying to convey it to students who barely have a knowledge or barely have a working knowledge of the history of China and also, well, the more recent history of China, as well as a, a good grasp of Chinese literature. Like trying to do all of those at one time is has been the challenge. But I would say, yeah, to it, it's shifted in the sense that it's deepened. I've been able to read more, think more, and talk more about these things. That's great. Do you have any personal favorite theorists or or stories that have uh, caught your eye since then? I don't know if I would characterize it as favorite, but one of the things, uh, the pieces that I've read recently, just to help myself, I'm going <laughs> to... Listeners, the highlight is reaching off is it, I mean, it's for... already a little old. It was published yeah. in the 90s, but it's the it's the introduction on written by Kirk Denton in Modern Chinese Literary Thought. Yeah. Nyla is pulling up an academic-looking book. Yes, yes, it's a very listeners. academic book. <laughs> well, it is, but it isn't. It's actually full of translations of essays and thought pieces by people like Lu Xun and Guomoro and Zhang Zhouwen and people like that. Um, so it's 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 a full of translations, but it helps to have Denton's he lays out these certain ideas. One, how early early modern Chinese literary critics were engaging with Western literary thought, but then also how he's trying to teach us as readers how best to understand it. And that's really helped me a lot. And I think that it's helped my students, hopefully. We'll see. <laughs> but, but I would say that's that's been on my mind heavily in the last few months. For our listeners uh, who missed it, and for myself, what was the name of the book again? Uh, Modern Chinese Literary Thought. Okay. Writings on Literature, 1893 to 1945, published in 1996. Okay, that'll be in the show notes, listeners, in the episode description, if you want to investigate that a bit more. I guess I should I should keep us marching forward onto our actual topic for this episode, which is a novella, The Sanctimonious Cobbler by Wang and Yi. Pretty exciting to be doing a novella. Um, yes. And it might be interesting to talk about the book that this novella sits inside, at least in English translation. That's interesting as well. Mm. In fact, I don't think I set aside a point to do that. So maybe we could, I could, I'll just quickly do that now. If um, listeners want to read this, <clears throat> it's inside a slightly hard to get book called By the River. Uh, let me just look up the full title. By the River, Seven Contemporary Chinese Novellas, and it's published by Chinese Literature Today, which I believe is a journal under Oklahoma University, which I believe is the one that has sort of ties with Howard Goldblatt, the translator. University uh, of Oklahoma. Yep, yeah, University of Oklahoma. Um, so they they have a journal that will, that will have translations and essays, and they do have series of books. Um, a recent one of theirs I read was Moyen's, funnily enough, Moyen's Sandalwood Death. That's a CLT book. So this one, you can, you, I believe you can get uh, physical copies and possibly e-copies online, but I can, I can secretly confide it's also up on archive.org. 
won't show up in Google search results, interestingly, but you can sort of digitally borrow it through that virtual library there. And this novella is inside, inside that book. There you go. There's the publication explanation. Next thing would be to sort of introduce and summarize the story. Quite a lot happens, nothing of really epic consequence. So I'll confess, I don't really have the intricacies of the plot memorized. I do have it in me to introduce the characters. So if you want to share responsibilities here, Lehigh, how about I'll introduce the characters? And if you're feeling up to it, you could try and run through the basics of the plot. Um, giving away or not giving away the major spoiler? <laughs> uh, there's a question. What would you rather do? I feel like it is central to the plot at the end of the day. If there is a plot as such, um, it's kind of central. So I'm going to give it away. <laughs> okay, right. So spoiler warning. Uh, if you don't want to know where this one goes, then go read it, then come back and listen to this episode, <laughs> which is something I never do when podcasters tell me to do it. I just charge yeah, ahead just every time. Through. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. um, yeah. So it's a, I would characterize it as a story set in a Shanghai Longtong, uh, centering around a, a few early middle-aged or about middle-aged men and women. Um, and they're kind of daily lives in in a big way but i would say that they're all sort of in transition so it's it touches on their transitions into the next phase of their lives um and it centers on two characters the cobbler obviously that the story is named after and one of the women in the long tongue named gundi they end up having an extramarital affair briefly but that ends up being kind of the the culminating feature of the story and what the what sort of drives the plot really yep and alongside uh, the cobbler and gundi there's xiaodi gundi's husband there's another uh, woman jin rong and there's uncle ye who's pretty memorable and mm -hmm. i'll make a confession here um my reading of the story was initially a little muddled because i thought uncle ye was another name for the cobbler because we don't learn the cobbler's oh. name for a while and then sure. eventually i realized wait this uncle, yes, yeah, seems to have a totally different personality from the cobbler. They're <laughs> yeah. like opposites almost. Almost, yeah. They're really quite different. <laughs> yeah. So it's worth probably going into the, the personality and the background of all of them. The mm. cobbler is this very sort of kind of morally upright and elevated character at the start of the book. He's salt of the earth, working man, but mm. also reads Song Dynasty literature in his yeah. spare time and is very restrained like he has lots of women cust women customer female customers women whatever his customers are mostly women and they are always trying to flirt with him and mm -hmm. he's just sort of he isn't he doesn't rebuke them nastily but he also does not he behaves completely appropriately uh, for mm -hmm. a married man mm -hmm. um so he's this real paragon of virtue but obviously that becomes muddied and i he guess in um what's the word for it aphorisms yes he speaks in aphorisms yeah. that's another kind of quirk about him right so he's got a lot of insight he's well respected um but a more human side comes out towards the end of the story so that's him but i and think then... it's worth mentioning that he is married yes but he's from a village and his wife and family is all in the village and he's alone in the city 
Yep, uh, it's a village. I think it's the, in the northern reaches of Shanghai, the Shanghai municipality. <clears throat> so I'll I'll bring that up again because that ties into another character. His opposite in the story. I hadn't really thought about this before, but now that I mention it, he, he's more or less got an opposite in the character of Uncle Ye, mm-hmm. who is this um now the cobbler is a young younger guy if I'm younger. Right. I think Slightly... he's in his early 30s yeah right Uncle Ye is like he's early middle-aged like the majority of the cast and he he plays Mahjong he's um doesn't have much of a filter he's a bit of a flirt just a little a bit yeah bit of a cad in some a cad I think that's a good word for him not not <laughs> an evil character but um not a moral not moral paragon either and then we have the two female characters who are kind of mirror images of each other in a way. Also, yeah, definitely. Because one is, uh, has, presents as more sort of, I guess, middle class and upright. Uh, and Jin Rong, yeah. And then Gundi um, is much more free and easy in the way she communicates and behaves mm-hmm. and has um, a sort of, this, I think she's, her family are from the same sort of area as the cobbler, the northern yeah. reaches of Shanghai. They're so far north in the Shanghai municipality that they think of themselves as Jiangsu people, basically. Yeah. Uh, for any listeners who don't know, Jiangsu is the next province north of uh, north of Shanghai. And it's definitely true. If you don't know your Shanghai geography, it does extend far enough that once you're at the edges of what's considered the border of Shanghai, it's not really urban anymore. Mm. It's more mm. like villages. Um, so they've got those sorts of more down-to-earth roots. Gosh, and then everyone ends up in some kind of a love rivalry with one right. another. I, I think, think it's also worth mentioning that Jin Rong is presented as very straight-faced, as in right. cold, um, not particularly beautiful, not ugly, but just um, more towards the plain side only because she's cold, whereas Gundi is portrayed as very fashionable there's a part where she's described as either dressing kind of western or dressing very modern depending on who is looking um and she's very beautiful but she is it comes from that village life so she's a bit um not very sophisticated a bit unsophisticated yeah 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 very warm unlike Dean roll yeah and I think they also talks about Jin Rong's fashion style as well. She, it's not she's she doesn't have a sort of modern trendy style, but she does wear, I guess, more sort of formal, very mm. feminine clothes. I think it often describes her floating skirts and dresses and whatnot. Yes. yes. Uh, whereas Gundi, I don't think that's her style. No. Yeah, she she actually Wang Ani goes into a, a long description of Gundi's style, but. I, I would have to go search for it. Yeah, it's something she thought about, I guess. You get lots I of them. I can um, really see them in my mind. Like to me, they're they're so different. Yeah. All these characters are pretty easy easy for me to visualize. Maybe yeah. partly because I I lived in Shanghai, although I was not living in this sort of neighborhood, that's for right. sure. But if you're in Shanghai, you're brushing shoulders with all of the economic spectrum. The one guy I didn't mention is Xiao Di, Gundi's husband. Right. He's a match for what my Chinese friends would often describe me was a stereotypical Shanghai, Shanghai man, yeah. uh, Shanghai husband, or just Shanghai man, like ruled by his mother, a mummy's boy, 
perfectly well behaved, but not not really lacking in substance and strength. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that so Gundy is she has a what would you say a stable relationship, but not a very satisfying one. They well, it, it, I like how all of these characters' marriages are described because in that they're all about middle-aged, they've all been married for around 10 to 15 years. And so we get a glimpse, we get a description of their early married life um, in connection to what we see now, where they're kind of in a more, you know, they all got into their marriages for one reason or another. And as time passed, maybe those reasons just became a little bit less important. Things like stability or kids or, or what have you. And now they're just kind of in these vague partnerships, <laughs> living together, not really, none of them have any real passion, so to speak of. I think Uncle Ye is a perfect example. And I actually wanted to mention um, his relationship a little bit because it's so interesting. He's sort of a house husband. Uh, he knows that his wife has, she's the one making the money. Uh, he's sort of out of a job, but she's running a business and doing that quite well. Um, and he, I like how he's described. He's supposed to, he recognizes that she's got a lot of power because of that. And so he doesn't want to get in her way. And so he's sort of like, he doesn't argue with her too much. He doesn't, um, he also doesn't hold it against her. He just recognizes, okay, this is our dynamic now and I need to uh, act accordingly. So I, I quite admire that about him. Right. Is he the character who we're told um, didn't, was sort of a loser in the reform and opening up of the economy where like he had some sort of, uh, some job that was, you know, part of the state economy and mm -hmm. guaranteed to, you know, whether it was making money or losing money was guaranteed to sort of stay as an iron rice bowl. But then there is a, there's a section in the story I remember where the market forms hit and it sinks loads of businesses and it takes a while for a smaller number to spring back up. And yeah, there's there's losers and winners, but mm -hmm. it seems like, especially initially, there's a lot more losers in their, their section of Shanghai. Right. And I think, I don't know, I can't remember Jin Rong's situation, whether she had been working, or I think she is still working, but it's a very, uh, it's not very high paying. She doesn't own her own business, I think, if I remember right. Yeah, but it's definitely a shopkeeper kind of story. Yeah. I remember early in my first year in in China, I was sharing an office with this very quiet American guy. He was actually a Mormon. Yeah, Mormon. Hmm. And he gave me some, he wasn't the most useful guide to the one for a new arrival in China because he was not very forthcoming. Uh, but he did say something which at first I didn't quite get. Then I, un it, it felt it rang more and more true later. He said, uh, if you want one way to understand China in general is just think of it as a nation of shopkeepers. Hmm. And on a basic level, the number of small shops is just crazy anywhere you go. But the sort of vibe, once you get to know what the vibe of the people working in those shops is, uh, you do get, I think, the vibe of the street, at least in the towns and the cities. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that, because I wanted to go back and look at the beginning of the story again. And the whole first chapter, or 
I don't know, the first few pages is devoted to just understanding how the cobbler moves from corner to corner due to different economic things that are going on. And, you know, when like the police come and and say, oh, you can't stay on this corner, he moved just to that corner. He'll just go across the street. Um, So it's interesting that you say that because that's exactly how the story starts. Yeah, I kind of went in thinking that's going to be uh, what the whole thing is about and not about sort of the drama of some people and their yeah. their marriages and or failing marriages or not because he's it, I'll, I'll read the first few lines it makes you think it might be a slightly different sort of shanghai story and then you realize later it's just sort of setting the the mood and the setting it says it's the first words are in order to explain how this particular bit of turf ended up belonging to the young cobbler it's probably a good idea to first look at the history of the city and its development in modern times which practically speaking means certain people and certain events Thank you, Wang Anyi. Originally, the patch of dirt in question had been on the edge of town, part of a larger tract where the city's foreign residents had located their cemetery, which locals called the foreign... Oh, I've scrolled out and lost it. Which locals called the foreign graveyard. The streets nearby were crowded with florists, candle shops, sellers of statuary, crosses, angels, Virgin Marys carved of wood or stone, and other objects suitable for placing on graves. Uh, Later on, a Chinese cemetery was established on the farmland adjoining the cemetery and shops catering to Chinese funerary customs soon proliferated as well, selling things like incense candles, paper effigies, burial robes, ghost money and Chinese style coffins. And then it goes on a bit more about sort of the transition away from Shanghai being a colonial city. And then it kind of makes sense, I suppose, that it talks about a transition from a fully socialist economy, Shanghai, to the marketified Shanghai that exists today. Mm-hmm. It also makes me wonder if we're supposed to infer this is happening around Jing'an, because I know Jing'an Park used to be a foreign graveyard. Oh. A fact, haunted Shanghai fact. Or it could potentially also be um, Xu, uh, Xu Jiahui, because that was where there was there was a great big Catholic, mm. French Catholic church, which is still there, but I believe that's all that was in, in old Shanghai, or it might be somewhere else entirely, but the Virgin Mary's made me think maybe this is a French or some other Catholic corner. That could make sense. I, don't they mention the church in, I might be thinking of a different story that I read recently, but isn't yeah. there a mention of a church again somewhere else? I've forgotten. I think that might be a different story. <laughs> Sorry. I can say, I, I might have gone into this in a past episode, I did have a really interesting, just one e- one evening or one afternoon in Shanghai, I got invited by a, a friend from the um, the first place I lived in in China, uh, Doqing in Zhejiang province. She had these friends in Shanghai uh, she was going to visit and she brought me along and they were sort of older middle-aged people and in their house, which was a very old school, Shanghai dwelling, they had uh, a little shrine which had Virgin Mary and some other, some fruit and stuff and some other Christian items, maybe like a cross and a picture of an older man and an older woman who I guess was one of this couple's parents. Mm-hmm. And I asked like, is, are you guys Christians? Have you inherited whatever, you know, that part of Shanghai's history? And they said, no, but my parents were. So we've given them the shrine they would have wanted to have a sort of Catholic style one 
it's like, damn, I th- how many how many months and even years have I been here? And I'm only getting this little piece of Shanghai history is only reaching me now. Uh, felt yeah. so much more real than a, a, you know, a sort of beautified, well-preserved church or a museum. Yeah. These are the actual people living in the alleyway. Yeah, that makes Just sense. crazy. Mm-hmm. I always had that feeling too when I would have taxi drivers, for example, who had a cross hanging from their, um, mm. <laughs> from their mirror, I would always end up in a conversation about basically the same thing. Yeah. Right. When I saw things like that, I assumed they might be a more recent convert because there is that wave of Christians in, in the country as well. But did you find in Shanghai that they were more often like, that it had deeper roots or do you know oh my experiences weren't usually in shanghai they oh, were right. where i was living in the north um oh yeah i i usually got the sense that they weren't exactly recent uh converts but i don't know i don't think i ever had a full conversation about the lengths of it in their family so okay right yeah. interesting mm-hmm. uh we could go down this rabbit hole further um <laughs> is there anything else you want to talk about um plot wise or do we want to go, go on to Wang and Yi herself I think this is combining with what you're going towards with the with talking about her style in general it's it's interesting it's one of those stories where it starts out one way you don't know exactly where it's going because in terms of plot it's very much like a winding um alleyway in a lot of ways you don't know exactly what next big road you're coming to right I find that the issue of plot becomes something that is like from a teacher's perspective, it's so difficult when you read a story that really doesn't have a plot line because students don't know what else to latch on to except for plot lines. Right. Yeah. It's, I suppose it's just similar for stories in general. We may not be reading them for the actual story. We might be reading them for the vibe or for the ideas, Right. but if there is no story, then you're often stuck with the rather avant-garde, potentially kind of uninteresting piece of literature not always but you know we call them stories and not poems for a reason at the same time I don't think that that this type of story is it's not unusual um you know in ages past if you were sitting around listening like like I'll tell you uh, my grandpa used to have this story that he would tell us it was more like a joke um I there is no beginning and there is no end but basically he would sit us around and he'd go one dark and stormy night many kids were sitting around the campfire and and I would poke the fire and begin I don't know there's a whole middle section but he would call us out cousin by cousin so basically from oldest to youngest and it would go around in a circle like that (laughs) and it would just be so fun because you you knew what was coming next but you also didn't know exactly what was coming next he would use his voice in different ways he would make a few things up and then suddenly uh, insert so-and-so's name and then they would poke the fire and begin and then the story would you know start all over again it was all very exciting and it was meant to be done as a collective together activity like there was a lot of laughing and tickling and playing involved at the same time um that's not an unusual way of telling a story in days past right but for whatever reason when it comes to exploring that type of storytelling in a classroom setting students find it difficult sometimes 
<laughs> oh yeah, what what I would maybe say is the thing that some people latch onto stories for would be more about the characters than um than plot. You know, they, they say some stories are character driven rather than plot driven. But I would agree it's sometimes a bit harder if you're reaching for the deeper academic level ideas to analyze characters rather than, say, like the settings or the plot or the action. Um, unless you want to go into like sort of deep psychological analysis of the characters, which you could probably do for this one. But sure. the story is so light that almost feels like betrayal if we start doing a Freudian analysis of Uncle Yeah or something like it feels like the wrong approach what do you mean by light um as in it's a story about ordinary not very wealthy people rather than uh, Mao Zedong leading the armies on the long march or mm. um a Leo Shin story about humankind trying to escape a doomed earth or something mm. it's, so a, it's not this, epic. yeah this is a small scale story about you know real ordinary things I I asked that question because by the, I think I sort of felt that at first too. And then by the time I got to the end, <laughs> I, I hate to admit this. Um, I was actually very emotional by the end. And I think it's because the experiences that the two main characters go through, and actually all of them to an extent, we just don't really get to see how everything played out. Those are might not be epic in the big historical national sense, but they are they're the type of experiences that change you as a person. And so they are very heavy at the end of the day. So mm. that's why I asked, <laughs> what did you mean by light? Fair enough. Um I I'll transition us into talking about Wang Yi herself. I was just screwing around in my ebook program, Caliber, trying to find the book of Shanghai because mm. it was in my episode on that book that Wang Yi came up in this podcast before. Um, one of the stories from that book we talked about was her Afang's Lamp. And what I the only real things I remember about that are it's about families or a family. Uh, they're shopkeepers and they're in Shanghai. And it's, again, very sort of small scale story. And it's emotionally touching. Is that typical Wang Yi? Do you know? Like, how familiar are you with her identity as, as an author? I would say that's very typical. Yes. Um, when I first learned about her, this was back in like 2014 or so. What I knew about her was that she tended to write on domestic settings, um, very much centered or often centered on the women characters and what they might be going through. Uh the stuff I've read around her, the critical pieces that I've read around her tend to talk about her writing very autobiographical stories. Um, yes, that they touch on history, they touch on economics, they touch on the national story, but they almost always are centered on these day-to-day uh, -day experiences and very, very human relationships. Yeah, I've resorted to looking over on Wikipedia to get some quotes, people's takes and our own takes on her style. And there are there are a few good ones here. Um, there's one from another show guest, uh, Jeffrey Kinkley. He said that she's a realist whose stories are about everyday urban life and that she does not stint in describing the brutalizing density 
the rude jostling and the interminable and often futile waiting in line that accompany life in the Chinese big city. Yeah. And yeah, there's something about jostling that feels kind of right for for um uh the sanctimonious cobbler. People are in very close proximity to each other and um people uh, things only blow up once really in the story, but there's a lot of sort of petty um petty social maneuvering i guess mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes and i like how it's this is probably a note for a different question <laughs> but i also really like how the that pettiness is told the narrative of it is uh, distanced and third person and it's also a paraphrase of the past thing that happened and the reason why these people have an emotion towards each other right I think mm. that's quite interesting as a as a technique. It reminded me a lot of Zhang Ailing, but I, I have read elsewhere, I can't remember where, that Wang Ani doesn't really like to be compared to Zhang Ailing, which I can understand why. <laughs> Although it's hard not to compare them in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think of the, the Zhang Ailing, Ailing Chang that I've read. It felt, the, the little that I have read felt a little more heightened, uh, Heighten, I mean, heightened can mean lots of things. A little more experimental, maybe. The emotional situations are a little bit more fraught or politically, socially loaded, like in Lost Caution. Or there was one, um, one I did around episode 50. I forget what it was called, but it has like a sort of shifting between dream and reality. It's sealed off, mm -hmm. that's what that was. Whereas the Wang Anya I've read is much more sort of straightforward and socially realist like if i was thinking of Zhang Ailing, Ailing Chang, i wouldn't think of a social realist because the sort of street level social conditions i mean she's concerned with every maybe the everyday shanghai but it's more about the vibe of the city than like someone who has to have their you know a cheap lunch cooked for them at the shoe shop every mm. week or something i'm hearing uh I'm hearing you point to different, maybe class orientations there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Wang sure, like, little Wang Avi I've read is like strictly working class, and the Zhang Ailing, it's a little bit more all over the place. But it seems like the people she finds most interesting tend to be either very rich or white collar. Right. Um, she was a product of her time, and <laughs> that. Yeah, that's that not a criticism. Kind of just a description i think no yeah of course that's that's what i think a lot of people still find fascinating about her definitely yeah. um i don't think i've got anything else very insightful to say about wang anyi remember you mentioned you wanted to mention a prize that she'd won uh yes she won the newman prize for chinese literature in 2017 uh which is also connected to the university of oklahoma that's where it sort of originated i I wanted to kind of touch on maybe something from her acceptance speech, I suppose, because that's a, a first person account for her um, about what like what the prize means for her, or at least what her literature means for her. But then I guess it's also very important to note that the prize is based off of one work. And that work was her novel called Reality and Fiction which was one of her earlier novels. Uh, I can't remember the date that it was originally published. 
but I like how she talks about it in her acceptance speech because she's one, she talks about how she probably wouldn't be able to write that book nowadays. <laughs> and it's because she's older and more experienced. Whereas at that time she was, she was trying to get out of her own head and in the trying, she was trying to see what came out in this, in this other space. Um, so I, I quite find that interesting that for her, there's even a, an inability to go back to a former way of writing for her. So that's quite interesting. Um, I'm trying to find a quote from the speech itself that I liked. So she says of this, of this novel that she won the prize for, she says, I took I myself as a point of departure and traveled to a time and place where I was absent. There I built a, a paradise for that so-called absence of self creating limitlessness out of limitation. Unlike Paleolithic humans, I did not have any physical tools in my hands, but I did wield a product of advanced civilization, the written word. In that respect, I consider myself indigenous to the age of civilization. Holy moly. Right? Those are big words. <laughs> I, I really love that, though. I love that it uses the word indigenous. It really puts a different spin on you know, when we say like citizen of the world, for example, puts a different spin on just who we are as uh, as people who have language and written language in particular. And I suppose in many ways, it, it's very significant now that we're in 2022, getting into 2023, when a lot of people are talking about things like uh, AI and maybe like we live in a simulation and <laughs> or multiple simulations, you know, we're, we're thinking about existence in a really different way than we ever have before. So I just find it to hear those words and know that you and me, we, and Wangani, which rhymes, <laughs> we all, we're all indigenous to the age of civilization. And maybe there's a next point in time. You know what I mean? It, it feels like famous last words. That's what it feels like to hear that. You mean a future where we're as individuals, we're not part of civilization? Or, well, we maybe a few hundred years from now, there will be an indigenous to another kind of civilization. You know what I mean? I was the, the feeling I got from her words there was just that I have a better idea of maybe how good she, why she was so good at writing characters who seem to be quite different from her, especially the men. Mm. Um, like in imagining herself in a place where she didn't exist was what she said, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In in so many where words, yeah, yeah. So, um, I I mean, I don't know what sort of background she grew up in, but she created a very believable. Like to be honest, this is not the kind of story I'd read for fun, but I have to credit her for saying it was a very vivid, believable picture of this little neighborhood in Shanghai and all the people seemed very well drawn like the sort of um the the cobbler who's this morally upright guy who proves to be all too human and yet that doesn't i felt like it didn't really cheapen his you know his his moral or educational core there as well and then like a character like uncle yeah i feel like she has a very a very clear view of a certain kind of guy and the way his um his male desires drive him um it, you know 
I have to credit her for that because obviously she's never been Uncle Ye, mm. but she can understand Uncle Ye and write him and put him in his social context in mm-hmm. that part of Shanghai at that particular time. And maybe it doesn't create something very flashy, but it creates something pretty impressive. I would agree with that. Very fleshed out as a as a human, as a person. My my next well, is there anything else you want to say about Wang Anyi? The only thing I really knew about her long ago is that she teaches at Fudan University, a Shanghai university. So Shanghai mm-hmm. is is her place, I guess. And also that she's what is she? She's um uh she's the vice chair of the China Writers Association. Mm-hmm. So she's part of the system, uh, very much so which doesn't shock me because to be part of the China Writers Association, which is a state-supported organization that gives writers, approved writers a stipend and, and public uh, publicity and so on and status, to be part of that, you don't need to be a propagandist for the Communist Party, but no. you, you can't write, you can't be a dissident, basically. You can't be too edgy sure. and be in there. And I don't get the sense, although her writing is very socially focused it doesn't seem to be at least the the stuff i've read is not socially critical not directly anyway so that's the only other thing i could really say there's a whole wikipedia page i should have read before we (laughs) it's got some really interesting info that you know when she was when she was very little the cultural revolution was going on and she was sent down to the countryside but i i'm not just going to sit here and read that now um on the spot that would be embarrassing for me (laughs) i find what i find impressive about her is that I, I can't remember now where I read it, but somewhere it was mentioned that she kind of entered the literary scene quite early on, partly because her her family, her mom at least, has a bit of a literary background as well. So when you talk about her being a part of the system, that wasn't unfamiliar to her even at a young age as a young writer. But I this is the part where I don't know where I read it. I read somewhere that she being in that association sort of prompted her to feel like, okay, this is my work and I need to treat it as such. And so in, in a lot of ways, I see this as her taking discipline, a very, very disciplined approach to literature, um, right. which I, I really admire just coming, knowing that she's been writing since the eighties, she's prolific, but in not in the sense that we often think of with like genius. We She's prolific in the sense that it's just a constant output and it's a high, of a high standard. In her nomination statement, or not her nomination statement, the, the scholar who nominated her, he is named, let me find it, Dai Jinhua. Actually, that might be a woman, I'm not sure. <laughs> the- Dai Jinhua. Uh, you keep talking, I will Google that name. Right. Um, the professor Dai Jinhua is a you know is a professor at Beijing University. Yeah, she's a lady. She, oh, excuse me, she wrote the nomination. She was the one who nominated Wang Anyi for the Newman Prize. And one of the things that she talks about is how uh, Wang Anyi's works they've all been quite different. Different in the sense like she's experimental to a, to a degree at least. She has written different types of stories. Perhaps they could all be characterized in a more domestic sense, but at the same time, they're about really different materials. 
um, drawing from really different types of experiences. So I, I take the mind that she might not be critical, partly because she doesn't need to be critical. She is one of the people who is, she's m perhaps more focused on what literature can do and really putting her mind to developing a literary thought and a and multiple literary styles. I, I would consider her more of a more of a writer in that sense than a than in a public spokesperson. For sure. Yeah. And I think I think this was my thinking when I started the podcast was that I found I don't know. And there's a, it seems to be a popular idea in, in the English speaking world that how good a Chinese writer is, is just about how critical they are of, you know, China, right. essentially. And yeah. uh, the thing I think is important to do is on one hand, recognize that that sort of writer is incredibly important under such an authoritarian government. But you should never go thinking that that's the sole criteria to measure the worthiness of an offer because Absolutely. that's just silly and it's unkind to Chinese writers to uh, make that your only criteria. Not a very original thought, but I don't oh. think it can be said enough. Right. I agree with that. And I suppose my wanting to bring up the idea of the Newman Prize is it falls in that category a little bit, um, partly because what I know about the Newman Prize comes from my research on Moyen and how him receiving that prize uh well he was nominated for the Nudstat prize which is a prize for literature but he was that was that happened before the newman prize the newman prize was then created and he i believe was the first person to receive it and the newman prize as its name is it's specifically for chinese literature authors who are writing in chinese and mainly from the mainly from the mainland he was nominated for that by Howard Goldblatt. And then just a few years later was nominated for the Nobel prize also by Howard Goldblatt. Yeah. Right. And so there's this, there's this um, heritage. No, that's not what, that's not the word I'm thinking of. There's like this behind the scenes things that are happening with these prizes that I don't think readers are often aware of. And what irked me when when Moyen won the prize was that he was receiving so much criticism from scholars like Perry Link. And yet that to me, one, it diminished his, his style, right? And two, it didn't take into account that the whole process that had happened to get him the Nobel Prize, which was the process of translating, the process of nominating, and just like the whole idea of what prizes are for in general. Right. Mm. When it comes to Wang Ani, she's not what's amazing to me. is She's not really receiving the type of criticism that Moyen received for the Nobel. But what if she were to win the Nobel? Would she also receive that criticism? So if we talk about what the prize is for and what really goes into it, maybe we'll be able to just like set that whole critique aside and be able to focus more on why the writing is impressive in the first place maybe i don't know to me that it, it's an interesting way to open that discussion let's say that absolutely speaking of behind the scenes and howard goldblatt um listeners here's here's a interesting window for you i had some email communication with mr goldblatt to see if he'd come on the show but looks like no luck he'd, i did get one reply i haven't had a second so howard if you're listening please reply to my email please <laughs> please come on but i i think realistically it's not happening. It was close. 
but I don't think it's happening. Yeah, I, I had a look, by the way, on uh, Wang Anyi's Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Her family is insanely cultural. Uh, her mother, Ru Juyuan, uh, Ju Juan, sorry, Ju Juan, is a novelist, while her father, Wang Xiaoping, is a playwright and director. She has an elder sister, Wang Anuo, who is a former editor of a literary magazine, and a younger brother, Wang Anwei, who does literary art and research. And she's married to Li Zhang, who is an editor of Shanghai Music Publishing House. Mm. So <laughs> I think it's a credit to her to have grown up in such a family and not be <laughs> not be outspoken of like how to change society, right? Or to I, just I, write I, novels about writers. Right. <laughs> also, you can maybe guess what happened to her parents during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, they got sent to labor camps and she went down to the countryside. So yeah, there's there's the downside of having that sort of family at the wrong time in, in history. Uh, I think know. that's kind of what I'm pointing to. She's a part of that same generation that uh, became the new kind of cultural critics in the 80s. And some of her works at the in her early years, I do think, kind of lean more towards that. But I think that it makes a lot of sense from a stylistic point of view that she became more interested in really hone, like really tightening the craft. That's what I admire about her. Yeah, the Wikipedia also um, has a bit on like how she fits into that. There's different literary trends and movements. Um, so it says her works have been studied as Juqing, educated youth. Don't know so much about that. Shungan, uh, I do know about this. That's root-seeking literature, um, which was a post-cultural revolution movement. And then Hai Pai, Shanghai style. And if, if listeners want to know about Hai Pai, go listen to the Book of Shanghai episode because my guest got into that one. Uh, yeah, and then also Dusha, uh, I guess, urban matters or something, urban cosmopolitan literature. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe one link with Aileen Chang, Zhang Aileen, although what cosmopolitan means is maybe different for them. Been talking for a while, so I should take us onward. I had a section called surface level questions, which had a character, society, and a spicy question. Yes. Uh, I think we kind of talked about characters already. Um, mm-hmm. So if you're happy with that, I'll just skip that one. All righty. And then we've got society. Uh, like good comrades, we ought to consider class and the material situation of the characters. We kind of got into that already, but they're they're all shopkeepers. Um, no one's especially rich, it seems. But no one is, as far as I could tell, no one's on the poverty line either. I'm going to say probably if anyone's got the most precarious situation, it's maybe the cobbler because that's what he, i was gonna say <laughs> yeah he gets displaced once or twice and he is a migrant uh a migrant worker essentially he's um doing what i've heard called circular migration moving back and forward between the urban and the rural areas mm-hmm. even though ironically the, the rural area is still the shanghai municipality right and he's the one that is uh often thinking about money i don't i don't feel like we get so much of the adding and subtracting the calculating that we get with him with the other characters yeah and he is it that he he first gets to know gundi because she's bringing him lunch if i'm remembering right um well her house is closest to him and so she he asked her at the suggestion of an older lady who's also what she's the mother-in-law of jean rong um 
because the cobbler was like, well, where can I heat up my lunch? I'll bring my lunch and I just need oh, to yeah. heat it up. So Gundy becomes, uh, she opens her door for him to heat up his lunch, but they don't become friends that way, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, he. it's a more economic relationship. I remember as well, you get sort of a sequel to that relationship when he finally takes her home uh, for some sexy time and she sees like the conditions he's living in. And what is it? He has a a sink filled with cold water and he says when she's looking at it raising an eyebrow so to speak he says yeah that's my fridge that's how i keep stuff cold right yeah true because uh, he doesn't have the facilities which is just the same reason as why she's heating up food he doesn't have the facilities to heat the food right he doesn't even own a shop per se he just has a little corner stand basically yeah it's kind of a uber style model of doing business in a way in a way, yeah. And he doesn't, he's the only one who has to commute to work too. <laughs> he walks, I don't know, what is it, five or 10 blocks to come to his work. Yeah. And I kind of wonder if the that compounds into or weaves into the age difference between him and the other characters. I read a book, um, was this last year? I think it was a year, a year ago now. Time is so fast. Um, it was called, what was it? Social Inequality. It was a, one of the penguin uh, imprint puffins like non-fiction books about just about social inequality in the modern world but it was specifically in the uk it was based on it it was the authors of a uk study had written this book on mm. what inequality what wealth and wealth differences look like in the uk and although it was already it, it was from about 2000 and was it? I think it was a pre-Brexit book and then, you know, pre-COVID, pre all these crazy changes. So already it's out of date. But one thing it underlined, which I had never really thought about before, is that one of the biggest differentiators, ways you can split the well-off and the not-so-well-off in the UK, is just age. Older people tend to be quite a lot better off just because they've accumulated this or that over time. So sure. I wonder if, like, the fact that the cobbler is, you know, in a more precarious situation than the others... Is it that he's on his way up and he'll be at their level in time? Or is it something more fundamental that he's stuck one rung down the social ladder? Right. Well, I mean, we do get maybe a hint at the very end when he makes his choice to become uh, some sort of political go-between. And maybe that's his way of saying, well, it's not just money that's going to save me. It's the institution. I'd forgotten what he did. Can you remind me? I'd have to go and read the word, the the actual name for it. Let me, let so me go through. Sort of in short, though, he transitions out of working completely in the private sector to having some kind of tie with local government. Um, Is that it? Not quite. Um, it's terrible having these nuanced plots full of tiny little details. Right. Uh, when it was all just Kung Fu fights. <laughs> Even then... Even then, <laughs> Uncle Yeh asked Gunhai where he'd been the day before, and Gunhai told him that there had been a meeting for him and the other street side business people. They'd been called on to form a team responsible for keeping public order, and Gunhai was sporting a brand new red armband emblazoned with the words "Mutual Defense." Right. This is one of those. If I mean, if you've lived in a big a big Chinese city, you'll probably have seen these these very grassroots level sorts of. Are they volunteers? Are they employees? Who knows? But they, when they get mobilized, they get mobilized. This is this comes after his realization. So I think 
speaking of plot, I think we do have to go back <laughs> and talk about what happens in the lead up to this, because for the cobbler, it's actually very against his personality, maybe not so much principles, but it's definitely against his personality to become part of a an organization as such, something so ceremonial in, in a sense, you know, he's mm. He's not a free spirit by any means, but we see him as this person who he's very self-sufficient, right? Yeah. Self-sufficient. Definitely. Um, and a bit of a, a, an independent thinker at the very least. And so I guess I'm sorry step. to keep interrupting. I apologize. I keep interrupting. Okay. I just thought of a very good word. Um, he, he seems like he's an autodidact as well, that he's self-taught yeah. as a reader. Yes. Absolutely. So this seems to be a, a bit of a shift for him, a lateral move. And it comes on the heels of the one time Gundy comes over to his house, or he doesn't live in a house, but she comes over to his place, which is in a bit of a rundown apartment building, as you've noted. And they run into his neighbors who are also male migrant workers and they are they're no stranger to bringing home women and that's something that the cobbler had always looked down on them for doing because they're all married but their wives are all back in villages and so in that he was bringing home a woman they were kind of like ha 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 yeah so you're doing it okay and they were okay with that they obviously had no problem with that but he becomes very self-conscious and um starts to feel like, well, that, that can't be a good thing for me. And I need to not have this happen. So essentially he doesn't see Gundy for a while. He brings his uh, daughters from the village into Shanghai for a visit. He kind of has this breakdown. He has this moment where he, he calls his wife and he breaks down crying on the phone. In classic Wanganyi style in this story, it's a paraphrasing it doesn't become a very long conversation, but it's this really poignant moment where his voice cracks and he says, I miss you. And so the two daughters come to visit him. And in this span of two or three weeks, Gundy doesn't see him. So the next time she sees him, he doesn't really look at her in the eye, kind of ignores her, has this red armband on his sleeve and has obviously joined this little team and it's just this moment where you realize as the reader, wow, their relationship is done. Um, and it comes very suddenly. Yeah. He's going back to being sanctimonious. Quite. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really understand the title until that moment. And then, yeah, had a bit of a reaction. <laughs> uh huh. Okay. So it's an our chance to be sanctimonious next, because the next question is, I'll just read it how I've written it. Um, what version or you could say vision, but I'll stick with version. What version of desire, romance, and sexuality has Wang Anyi inscribed here? Pardon the pretentious words. I have not very deep thoughts. I do have some thoughts, but what about you? Um, maybe you could go first because I my first question is I'm not quite sure what you meant by what version or even vision. Right. Okay. I didn't are are there different types of desire, romance, and sexuality that I should be aware of before? <laughs> there's an endless rainbow i believe an endless rainbow okay my aunt if someone asked me the question my answer would be that the the first 
idea you get of people's desires and their romantic relationships with each other is very sort of um, just domestic or transactional. It's just about what men and women do for each other. And you see this in relationships where like uh, Gundy and Chaudi have this not very happy, but um, at least peaceful relationship where they have very clearly defined roles as to what they do. Mm-hmm. Chaudi's role is not very impressive. Like mm-hmm. he drives a taxi, he, he takes in some money, doesn't do any of the chores. Gundy, um, I believe she works and also does chores. Mm-hmm. So it's well, not she had worked, and then at when we meet her, she's out of work. Oh, right. Okay. So yeah. So they have, I guess, a a, a traditional male and female uh, domestic relationship. They uh, even but had then that lovely moment where they kind of argue about it. It's yeah. like a it's a fake argument. It's a conciliatory argument, but it's kind of a cute moment as well. Uh, and then with the the cobbler, you get the the very well. If you call it transactional, the economic reality of like he's left his family so that he can make money for the family. The classic um, one member of the family goes to the city and sends remittances back and is not necessarily going to be in the city forever. So that's basically I, a completely... I think if I remember right, his wife is just a bit older than him. Oh, right. I, I take your word for she it. It is a common thing, or it was a common thing in village circles, at least. Oh, interesting. So in that way, he's like painted as a bit traditional. I okay. Have to say. So he's very traditional. It's an, at least in, as we see, it's very economical. And then his not, he has these non-romantic, uh, non-sexual relationships with lots of other women in his life who are heating up his food or they're his customers. And he has quite clearly drawn boundaries. And then as the story goes on, you get of a sort of a slow, almost like frogs boiling, slow um, escalation yeah. into like first. It's so funny that you mentioned frogs boiling because one of my favorite scenes is when when things start to heat up between him and Gundy and he um they both know what they want but they haven't fully acted on it yet he gets so worked up that he takes himself to a hot pot for and he spends (laughs) all this money on a one-person hot pot meal and it's just so good like it's um let me find that part he goes I've forgotten about that Finally, it almost felt like we'd gone into a different story for a minute. Yes. I like He just has this wonderful moment. So I'm going to read some of it, mm-hmm. if that's okay. He goes, finally, he went into a Chongqing-style hot pot restaurant and ordered a super spicy hot pot made with chili peppers and numbing Sichuan peppercorns. There was enough broth to serve four, but Gunhai had it all to himself. Spread before him was a platter heaped with marbled beef, lamb, pig's brain, and blood tofu. He plucked these delicacies up with his chopsticks one morsel at a time and submerged each one in the boiling broth, swirling it around before popping it into his mouth. It was piping hot, fiery, and tingling. Um, where, fiery and tingling, rich and pungent. And all of this, combined with the thought of how much it was costing, brought stinging tears to his eyes. He was just like some old fat cat, except that he didn't know how he was going to pay for it. <laughs> Have you ever seen the episode of The Simpsons where Homer gets Pinchy the lobster? No. <laughs> he gets this pet lobster that he absolutely loves. And then someone like accidentally cooks it or something. And there's this scene where he's at the dinner table weeping, but also between weeps, he's just eating this delicious lobster. It's <laughs> yeah, kind of it's basically like that. Similar he visuals. Says, It goes on, he says, his own children had never eaten a hamburger or gone to KFC. He felt sick at heart, but the worse he felt, the 
the better the food tasted. Cheeks bulging with the oily and spicy food, he felt tears rolling down his face and his frenzy gradually gave way to a sense of calm. I just, I personally love that scene. It's described so well. I think Andrea Lingenfelter, the translator, just really captured a wonderful moment here. She used great adjectives and verbs. <laughs> um, but also it's because it's this moment where they haven't, what's the word? Consummated. Yes, they haven't, they haven't consummated their relationship. So the scene is very sexual as well. He's It's very sensual and he's basically making up for what he wants to have happen in food. <laughs> But I would question whether how aware of that he is. Like, I know I name dropped Freud earlier, and I do think it's true that the more you push something down, the more it pops up somewhere else in a translated form, even if you don't recognize that's what's happened. Oh, yeah. And I, I feel like the Sichuan food is is perfect for that because um, Absolutely. it's a it's a very Shanghai story. He's a Shanghai guy. Shanghai cuisine or Zhejiang Jiangsu cuisine is not that flashy. It's quite no. plain little bit sweet but yeah. uh, Sichuan food is this excessive explosion of sour spicy hot although it can also be cold oily hot, oily yeah it's it's like the that. best Chinese food I'm going to say right now yeah. um it's certainly the most OTT I think um the, the line in that movie the sandlot oiling and oiling <laughs> uh for the American listeners <laughs> Yeah, so where was I going with? Yeah, so it's this um it's this thing that the sto- the him as a character and also the story has sort of pushed down anything more than like a casual uh, not casual anything more than a sort of teasing chased pinch has been has not appeared and then you get this um repressed and translated explosion in bodily enjoyment of food. Finally it becomes about um just your body experiencing something nice and I kind of thought that was as OTT as we'd get um but there is a little brief section of the book I won't I won't do a reading because it might be a bit weird but there's a little section of the book where we're um getting into what it's like for the cobbler and for Gundy when they yeah when they start having a sexual affair they start um banging in his apartment and it's described just as excellently i guess oh, yeah. it's very it's passionate it's yeah. um sensual and there's also like these really lovely uh visuals <laughs> that, that sounds like it's going to be graphic but it's not like the the first time she visits his place he can't figure out something's happened with his light or his lamp and so he has to figure out where to plug it in or something and he finally gets it turned on and immediately you see their shadows cast on the wall and so then everything is happening in Shadowland, right mm-hmm. it's just really it's just lovely like the way she delves into those that those feelings of that type of situation is great also, yeah. I was there are parts when we don't get Gunhai's thoughts about what it feels like to like touch Gundy, for example, uh, not until later on, but we do get Gundy's reaction to even just like feeling his shoulder. And mm. those reactions are so 
Like if Wang Ani delves into anything, that's what she really spends time doing, which I just think is great. Um, there's a lot going around these days about the female gaze, for example. And I'm like, oh, she captured that one. She captured that in a multitude of scenes. <laughs> yeah, there's bits. I mean, I was saying everything's repressed that you could argue that the other way, because there's bits before that where like um, he's showing up uh, and he's what covered in sweat from a hard day's work and she like yeah. washes him. And it's like, yeah, this is um, this, this is written by someone who's attracted to to men, I guess, right. <laughs> or at least is able to put themselves in Gundy's shoes quite easily. I, I I don't think I've got much more to say about this other than it's a really good. All of that stuff is described, like you said, very essentially translated really nicely, and it has a little bit of the explicit, but you know, never goes beyond the boundaries of good taste because oh, that if the story did that, that would be weird. The only point where it really does go into excess is the food, but that's, that's very, it's point. very amusing. Yeah. It's very on, on brand, I would say like, and you were talking about whether the character himself would notice it. I think he would. I personally think he would because I think right. that he is aware of his own, um, he's got a self-awareness that I think is missing in Uncle Ye, for example. I was and, about to yeah, say, he, Uncle Ye could have the exact same meal and not know why he's crying. Exactly, right. And I think that the cobbler is so fastidious about the way he spends his time and the way he spends his money. I think at that point, he very well knew what was going on inside for him. And I, you know, it's not... It is also a good thing to say it was not just a sexual relationship between them. Mm. They had become really good friends, you know, and so that desire to to answer your original question, what version of desire, it's one of the highest versions of desire because it was multi-layered attraction and connection. They were not just simply like, oh, this person is beautiful. I must have them. And they were not just you know, I'm bored at home and this person is available. It was none of that. It was simply, it was, it was in fact against all of that. It was like, yes, this person is attractive, but I have a life and I'm married and, you know, I'm doing this thing with my life and I have goals that I'm trying to reach. And, um, you know, it was like with, with, with Gundy, for example, her life kind of goes through this change because, how she had spent her time previously, suddenly she had this petty dispute with Jean Rong and it changed the way she was living her life totally in a lot of ways. And it made her realize that she, even after all those years, was still considered a bit of an outsider to that longtong, right? And so in many ways, she took a lot of comfort in the fact that Gunhai was also from the village and they could yeah. communicate on that level. So she felt like she had a friend. I would say it's one of the highest levels of desire and romance that can be written about yeah and on that point um if listeners are wondering who's gun high that's a reveal cobbler we, we, <laughs> we find, find out in this like yeah. really wonderful scene it's oh it's exactly like a movie it's exactly like a k-drama where you're just like oh my god yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> he he's like by the way you don't tell me you don't call me by my name and she's like what's your name He's like, my name is the same character as yours. It's Gunhai. And she's like, Gunhai. <laughs> so good. Yeah. And to I me, see. that that um adds another dimension to the again, the version of romance that we're dealing with because it feels like it like they're soulmates, like they're destined exactly. together. Yeah. 
or that you know not not to make it sound incestuous but like there's some I don't know if family's the right word but like you know sharing a name being yeah, yeah there you go where you are like reflections of each other yeah which can be a great thing for a relationship or a terrible thing but it's undeniable that it's a powerful dimension when you have something like that yes and you know to their credit they held off for quite a while they really tried <laughs> yeah commendable um I had another section here all about Wang Ani. Actually, I'm realizing we had this conversation already. Like uh, I asked if this was a classic Wang Ani story. We said it pretty much is. We had the question about the Newman Prize. We talked about that. But the related to what we were just talking about with novellas, extramarital affairs, or like really like deep romantic situations and feelings, that I have now come to realize is a big theme in novellas as a genre if they if there is such a thing as a novella genre the um the collector the editors of this collection they argue that that is one of the themes of novellas uh, interesting all, all yeah. novellas or just in chinese lit well that that is something i wanted to talk about so what they're what they are pointing out is that novellas are not really a genre outside of China, at least not in Western literature, that in Western literature, there tends to be novels, long form, and short stories, short form. There's nothing really in between, which I have thoughts on that. <laughs> I, I disagree, um, but I think maybe I'm thinking of the form. I think the novel is a form in English. I don't think a novel is a genre because when you pick up a novel, you don't go in English lit. You don't go in expecting anything except that it's going to be longer than a short story, shorter than a novel. And it might be a punchy quick read, maybe. maybe. But like as for genre, to me, a genre is about expectations that are sort of a deal between the writer and the reader. Like if you if your book has a sci-fi cover and there's no sci-fi in it, then I'll be like, well, you, you screwed the deal. Yeah. You tricked me. Um, yeah. But with a novel, I have very little expectations, except the size, but you can literally see how big it is when you pick it up. Right. So it's sort of a non-issue. I feel like the editors, um, and an article I read about novellas in, in, liter in Chinese literature, I feel like that's exactly the point that they pass over. They don't really deal with the question of why they're calling it a genre in the first place. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the author of, he basically discusses how it's very difficult to characterize the novella genre. And I'm, I think that you've characterized it quite well. If it's a genre, then there are expectations. And I got the feeling from the editors of this, uh, this collection, when they talked about it in the introduction, that there is a set of expectations for Chinese readers when they approach something that is a zhongpian xiaoshuo. So it's not duanpian and it's not changpian, it's zhongpian. So um, help me here. Duanpian is a novel. Oh, no, duanpian would be a short story. Duanpian is a short story. And then changpian would be the long, so novel. Ah, of course. And then zhongpian would be middle length basically all oh, right okay easy to remember so whether there are expectations that a reader especially a chinese reader would have towards a zhongpian xiaoshuo i think could be delved into a lot more by the critics and at least in the two pieces that i read they don't really delve into that but they sort of assume that it's there 
<laughs> at like calling it a genre. I would agree. They they deal a lot with the question of form or at least length, saying that a novella in Chinese literature is somewhere over third. Like short stories can be up to twenty or twenty or thirty thousand words, so a, a novella would be over that. But under what a novel would typically be, maybe approximately one hundred thirty thousand words or more for a novel. So a novella has this huge middle ground between 30,000 and 130,000 words, which speaks to form. So you can imagine that that will probably be cut up into chapters like this Wang Ani story is. Right. Uh, you know, Mo Yen's Hong Gao Liang, the, the Red Sorghum, for example, is characterized as a novella. Uh. But when it's published in English, it's a novel, right? Mm. <laughs> and that's another thing that I think they could touch on is the fact that like, in Western literature, at least in the English speaking world, a novel can be of any length, really, it can be long or short. It's different from short story, less in form, and more in the, the lens that a, an author takes to the story, to the actual storytelling method. So I feel like so much of what gets published or let's say so much of what gets translated from Chinese into English are novellas, but they turn into novels when they're published in English. Interesting. Yeah. Just trying to think of stuff stuff I've read um, that from an English perspective would be a novella. Xu uh, Zhechen's um, Running Through Beijing. I mean, that is either a very short novel or a novella from my English lit perspective. Uh, and then the Penguin Shorts, um, so the one we did, Radish, in English Lit Standards, that's definitely a novella. I think that's sure. like a textbook. I can see how that's a novella. Yeah. But then there's other shortish novels I've read in translation from Chinese that I wonder now, would, would they be considered a novella? Like, um, I think of A Perfect Crime, because mm. I could have sworn that I've heard oh, yeah. say that it was a novella originally. I know it was published online originally. And then, right. and then put in print. And now I'm just wondering, like, I'd have to go through the pieces that I've read to see if they characterize it as a novella or not. It's definitely a very speedy read. I, I read a physical copy that looked sort of novel, short novel size rather than a novella. But I think the type might have been quite large. And I definitely <laughs> zipped through that really quickly. Well, it is. It's only 130 pages. It's right. really short. Um, I'm pretty sure it's characterized as a novella. And also the fact that it was originally published online delves in, like that has everything to do with the idea of serialization. If you're serializing things like and later turning a serialized piece of work into a printed work, that's when you run into different types of lengths, right? Um, what they, again, what these editors in this collection don't talk about is how in the early modern time when people were putting out stories mostly or like first and foremost in newspapers even they didn't know what it would turn into by the end mm -hmm. right some of them like for example um one of the first wuxia novels for example it was serialized for years and so when you put it in print it's humongous right <laughs> it's huge of course it's not going to be a novella but when you're reading it in a newspaper you're also not thinking of it as a novel at the time or a novella for that matter it's one installment after another right 
And that's a, that's a connection that has been brought to the 21st century with blogging um, and putting things online first. People, scholars, critics have noted the fact that there is that similarity. Things aren't really printed, serialized in newspapers anymore, but they're serialized online now and then sometimes turned into print and in that way gain a bit more legitimacy sometimes. I think A Perfect Crime is a really good example of that. I don't know if this story would be a good, I don't think this story would be a good example of that. I don't think that it was um, ever published outside of print form first. Doesn't doesn't read that way. I was going to say, if it, old older listeners might be about to throw away their phone in rage, but I have to say, out of the Chinese English language academic essays on Chinese lit I've read, I would not trust boomer academics to do a very good job analyzing Chinese web fiction. I've right. never seen it discussed, and it's such a huge deal uh, among readers today in the 2020s, but also like way back to when millennials were, were tiny, like babies just starting high school. Like on this show quite early on, I covered Murong Shuetsun, and listeners have told me, yeah, this guy like defined my reading habits when I was 13 mm. online, and then later in print with like, you know, um, what's the word bootleg copies and stuff yeah. and I've barely ever seen not that I'm reading very much academic writing but yeah if, I feel like there could be the next generation of academics should, should definitely dig into that stuff and the reason by the way they I are, they're Murong, starting to. right that's fantastic I also wanted to bring up Murong because that um hot pot scene absolutely reminded me of um the main guy in leave me alone and but also um the other one of his that's translated um, running through red dust, someone with a guilty conscience, um, mm-hmm. um, just losing themselves in Sichuanese food. It's yeah. it's a vibe. <laughs> well, there's one last part of that issue with novels, novellas, etc. I think going <laughs> to mention him again, I'm pretty sure it was an interview or an article that I read by Howard Goldblatt, who was talking about how Uh, one of the favorite forms in China is the long novel, like the really ultra long novel. And that one of the challenges in bringing a novel like that into the English, um, for English audiences, English speaking audiences, let's say, is oftentimes editors have to cut out a bunch of stuff because they can be superfluous to the story. They can be repetitious, um, all of these issues. But I think the fact that Goldblatt points out how how much Chinese readers tend towards these long novels makes me think that it's not the novella that is kind of unique to China. It's the long novel that's more of the unique thing and that the novella is more just a novel. You know what I mean? I do. Um, So I just wonder if the editors of this collection perhaps... Like, I feel like they could have clarified these points a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's tricky when you're dealing with two languages where the words appear to mean the same thing, but actually they're maybe not as aligned as they are. I'll take us to our next section. Again, we've already talked about a lot of this. It's about Shanghai, the um, the ever-present character in the story, the city itself. Um mm-hmm. So 
we can take this question wherever it might lead us, but I was going to ask you, what species of Shanghai story is this? And is it in fact a Jiangsu story by other means? Mm. Like, is this really an urban story or is this just a story of rural people who are in the city? That's such an interesting question. I don't know if I'm the best person to ask about this because I feel like you I feel like you uh, know more about Shanghai literature than I do. I personally love to introduce my students to literature. Well, I, I introduce them to a lot of literature that is set in Shanghai. And then, of course, I bring up the idea that there is something called the Haipai. And, you know, there is uh, that the urban setting is unique within the context of like native place literature. That's what I tend to think of when I'm talking about Shanghai literature. But when you say which species of it, I don't know if I know a lot of different species. So I feel like you could teach me. <laughs> okay, what I'll do is I'll use my other Zoom account to log in, join this meeting. And then when I'm editing it, I'll I'll shift the pitch of that voice uh, up or down a level and then move to Angus's. <laughs> well, the Beijing Angus will be a little bit um, deeper, deeper. And then the Shanghai Angus, who's a bit more feminine, maybe. <laughs> Who enunciates his R's. Yeah. 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 Angus will be like, Wang An Yar. And then Shanghai <laughs> Angus will be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. I I think the, the things about the story that seem Shanghai-esque to me that I can remember off the top of my head are, again, the Xiaodi character. Um, he almost seems like a caricature of this wimpy Shanghai mm. man, which I I heard about. I, I only ever met one really gentle local <laughs> Shanghai lad, and he was a very sweet mama's boy, but um, he wasn't stupid at all. He was very smart. Um, but I guess also that caricature also sort of points to the way Shanghai is thought of as a more wealthy, uh, westernized less earthy sort of place right um which is i don't know you kind of see that in the story and you kind of don't all the characters are pretty civilized none of the men are really brutish apart from the guys from hunan they are like brutes uh i say that with with love of course um (laughs) and there is one there is one man-on-man fight in the story oh Um, yeah that's a great scene too yeah i guess the fight, the fight feels kind of Shanghai-esque to me, because um, in small town China, I think I sometimes saw bickering, but it was only in Shanghai I saw people really going at it. Oh. And it was always like, you know, local people, probably from the alleyway, presumably yelling over something domestic. That's crazy. So there's that. But then I have maybe, that's the only really big Chinese city I've lived in. So I have trouble separating what is specifically Shanghainese from what is just, you know, a tier one or a tier two Chinese city daily sure. life. The other thing is maybe the the, the fashionable um, fashionable ladies, mm-hmm. the Shanghai dama in the their modern attire, and then the other Shanghai dama in her, I don't know if it's more modern or more traditional or more uh different version of femininity but the way that both those characters have found a way to present themselves very specifically and take pride in it and project a certain uh like uh air about themselves one is very 
uh, effusive and the other is very always maintaining face that mm-hmm. feels kind of Shanghai to me that feels like ladies I might have walked past on the way to family mart or the, the the fact that Gundy goes dancing in one of the squares I mean mm-hmm. I know I know that that is a China-wide thing the IE square dancing yeah. but the I I believe that in Shanghai the the dancing grannies are known for going a bit extra right. some of the ones I would walk by they look just like the dancing middle-aged woman in the small town I lived in but if you went by the right one it looked like they'd gone for an evening on the ballroom or whatever they felt like they were the heir to the sort of republic of china tradition of the ballroom gatherings um beyond that like i know the long is it long tongs that the story is set in are um either they're a kind of shukuman or shukuman or is is a kind of that alleyway and I know that that sort of specific alleyway shokuman culture is a side of Shanghai when exploring. I walked down some of the more famous ones. Mm-hmm. But like, to be honest, as a privileged teacher at an international school in Shanghai, this stuff wasn't my life. This was like the thing I would see out the corner of my eye and then yeah. keep on walking. There was one time, um, even me, I, I never lived in Shanghai, but even um, within... Uh, or even among most of my visits, I really only went to a Longtong area once. It was one on one of my first visits there. I was like, I was told there was a market where you could buy silk stuff. It, it's exactly what I would imagine this story. Um, it was very different from like the French concession area, <laughs> mm. where things where the roads are narrow, but they're not super narrow. This was a lot of buildings, and in between the buildings were actual alleyways, and there were lots of like clothes hanging out of windows that were very close together. Um, wasn't a lot of sun that was able to hit a lot of that laundry, really, because it was all just so close together. But what was so interesting was that. Um, it was a very industrial feeling area as well because it was just outside of all these factories and then you could take a ferry that's what I ended up doing I took a ferry over to the pushy side and went to the mm. big mall there so it was just like worlds apart in terms of material items um couldn't be more different but that's sort of what I imagined as the real the realistic setting of this I to your question about what characterizes this as a Shanghai story, I kind of see it in terms of space. Um, when I imagine the Longtong, or as I'm reading Wang Ani's descriptions of the setting, I get a real sense of closeness, you know? You have, if you're in an alleyway, you have your your width, and that's obviously going to be much smaller than your length. And I kind of, liken that to the emotional uh the emotional alleyways (laughs) of the characters like there's a certain length there's a certain length that that can happen in their emotional contact with each other and with uh in their circumstances but the width sort of counters that in a way so in in some ways it's like there's only one direction for the emotion to go it doesn't expand as such it can only move forwards or backwards and in many ways like that's what we see in the story jean rong her character i think is a good example of it because she we we come to find out that she is um, pretty 
she's cold on the outside, but she's this like burning hot ball of passion on the inside. And she's tired of just like being ignored by her husband. So she's actually on the lookout for somebody. Uh, but because she's cold on the outside, she doesn't really know how to make that happen. <laughs> and she kind of finds the perfect victim in Uncle Ye, except that he's not the sharpest tool. And so like she has to she has to give them, him this major hint, but then he kind of botches it. So you can see how her emotion like goes straight forward, but then it has to just like come crashing to a stop, right? As mm. if as if like the force of it and the buildings just somehow collide. So it's like she can't exit where she where that emotion is happening. It's hard for anyone to get distance from what's immediately happening to them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's her story is so interesting too, because she ends up becoming better friends with his Uncle Ye's wife <laughs> than Uncle Ye himself, which is what she was trying to go for. <laughs> right. Uh, I think I have nothing else particularly insightful I can say about like what makes it a Shanghai story or what type of Shanghai story it is, except by going to the thing I was going to ask you next about what people who've never been to China or Shanghai might be missing. Because I would say for Shanghai, the thing that a reader who doesn't have the context won't get from the words themselves is that, you know, not far away from where this story is happening, there could be massive 30-story buildings or some of the richest people in the world yeah. going about their days because we're in, we're so zoomed into this particular neighborhood and you know it feels like it could be happening in a much smaller town but the reader who knows Shanghai will know that this is just one little slice of life in a place with what 20 million lives or something crazy like that yes. and Probably the other thing is for someone who doesn't doesn't know about anything about China that I'd underline is when he goes to get that Chongqing food, that's um that's just a very that's a very specific um type of Chinese food, which is mega different from what a guy from the north of Shanghai would be used to. It's, and yeah. and and also that because he's from a lower rung of society, the price of that food would clean him out. Whereas, yeah. at least in my experience, if you're on a a higher salary in in China, that food will be like pennies to you, nothing. But I think it's significant that it cleans them out, where it's yeah. just a it's just a hot pot meal. I would agree with that, and I I think this question and the the kind of approach you're taking to it is very much in the realism vein of things, with the idea that perhaps the actual setting sort of influences the way that the story either plays out or the way the style in which it's written. Um, speaking on style, I on, the other reason that I find it hard to answer the question is because I'm a bit more familiar with like my research in the in the Dongbei region, right? The, so literature okay. from the 30s and 40s that are supposedly representative of this cold, harsh environment. And that's what a lot of critics have looked at those stories as representing like they have cold and harsh characters there's a really difficult environment that they have to overcome so that relationship between person or individual or more like collective against nature and or against the big scary threat typically of the Japanese <laughs> uh, at that time 
was it, it was sort of compounded by the fact that you are surrounded by snow and ice and cold, cold wind that might like make you lose a finger or a toe, right? <laughs> um, and I feel like what that what happens in those stories is the sophistication in the style sort of doesn't there's it's not so sophisticated in that sense. I feel like if I'm looking for a Shanghai story, so to speak, I'm looking for that sophistication. I'm looking for a meandering narrative style. I'm looking for characters who are slightly aloof to the world around them, but also very much embedded in their local drama. Um, I'm looking for a softness in the way that people speak to each other. But I, there's a there's a characterization in this story where they talk about how, like, when something dramatic happens between two people, if if they have a problem with each other, there's no way for them to air it. So they have to keep it inside because kind of like with what I was saying with the alleyways, they're it's just too narrow to let your grievances really be aired. <laughs> Whereas like. Dongbei literature is all about airing grievances because that's what there is there. There's there's just this space for you to do it in, you know, and the problem is that no one's listening. <laughs> but in yep. Shanghai, you have ears in the walls. And so whatever you say is going to be turned into rumors about you. Right. So I feel like that's a part of the style as well. It gets it get, it comes through in the style. It comes through in the plot. And in the relationships between the characters, I think Wang Ani's narrative style, that meandering, she does very, very well. It very much feels like maybe you're a, like you're placed on a, you have a bit of a bird's eye view. And then that bird comes wandering through the alleyways and you're seeing people's lives play out. Um, yeah, that's how I sort of envisioned it. It's very visual. There's a very visual element to it as well. Yeah, you've articulated something I was failing to articulate, probably because it's in Shanghai. It has this easy breezy feeling mm -hmm. and it has a level of sophistication. I guess it's it's something I was trying to say earlier in the difference between Jinrong and Shanghai is that the way class class distinctions work so often around the world is that as people become more well off, they um, become more attached to a feeling of sophistication because what's it what do they say having cultural capital helps justify your actual capital that you own mm -hmm. and part of that way of behaving as if you're higher class he says doing the bunny ears quotes thing with his fingers is mm -hmm. that you're less direct everything is more indirect mm -hmm. and that all the drama well until it blows up so much of the drama in the story is indirect and the things that the characters have grievances over are in the grand scheme of things quite small and petty for the most part and yeah, I guess that makes it a Shanghai story. And I think it's interesting that even though none of the characters are actually that materially wealthy, the the Shanghai vibe is there in that they are a little bit more sophisticated. There and is a um, in their personalities and the yeah. way they express themselves. For sure. Yeah. And they're a lot more insulated from, say, death by starvation than the people of Dongbei in the 30s. But they're still not that well off. So it's that subtle difference that I guess is there in the story that helps make it a piece of Shanghai writing. Yeah. I would hope that Wang Ani agree would agree with something like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure she's probably talked about that in Fudan University or something mm -hmm. along those lines. Mm -hmm. Uh last question I got here for you. 
do you have a is this your favorite or do you have a favorite depiction of Shanghai in fiction? I don't know if I have a favorite depiction. I I actually just really like that we get so many types of depictions, right? Um, there is, I will say, a story that I recently taught in one of my classes was, um, oh my gosh, what is the author's name? I always find his name really difficult to say. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I was about to guess that. Really? Yeah. I don't know if I believe you, but anyway, Shijitsun's You just have to take it on faith. <laughs> one rainy spring evening. Oh my gosh. Titles are just gone. But it's it's it was written in 1929. So this is quite an old story, but it's basically this man who gets um he's he stays late at work and then after work he goes wandering through the rainy streets because it's during the um maybe the the plum rain plum rains yeah so he goes wandering around he has his umbrella and what i like about that story is actually the the critical analysis that my former supervisor gave of it because she calls that character a flaneur basically a street wanderer someone who's purposely wandering the street this it's a an archetype in modernist literature someone who is in an urban setting, wandering the streets, taking it all in, acting as this sort of like um, a de detached observer, but really taking a lot of pleasure in it. Uh, and in that way, it becomes very sensual. Uh, I, yeah, so I really like that depiction. I think in many ways, when I think of Shanghai literature, that image comes to mind. It's a great, it lends itself, the city itself lends itself to the idea of a street wanderer, a flaneur. Um, when I taught this a few weeks ago, at by the very end, it just occurred to me like Malta actually really doesn't lend itself to being a flaneur. Um, and the reason why I said that was because I think in my past life, <laughs> meaning that when I lived in China all those years ago, that's something I enjoyed doing. And in a place like Shanghai, it's very easy to do. Just like how I was in Pudong, in that silk uh, uh, silk market area, wandering those longtongs and then got on a ferry and found myself in Pushi, ended up getting on the metro going back to Pudong, but in a different area. You know what I mean? You end up covering all this ground and the entire time you're sort of walking or taking public transportation, you're observing so many things. Malta's not really like that. And I miss being that flaneur. <laughs> um, so yeah, when I think of Shanghai, I do think of that. Yeah, I absolutely miss that about Shanghai too. I I only strictly speaking did this a few times, but um, a few times just for at a spare day, I would just pick a subway station, yeah. go there, walk about, see what I find. Although often it would be a little bit more targeted than that. But yeah, you're right. Um, the, the excellent public transport system of modern Shanghai just multiplies what is already an amazing place to just wander aimlessly and... You can do that because of all the interesting things going on there, for sure. Uh, can I, I find say one more it. thing about the story, <laughs> yeah. which is sort of unrelated to the Shanghai bit, but I think it can be related potentially. I after I read the story and I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about, um, the the idea of personal fulfillment came to mind. I think that the story, in a big way, is about personal fulfillment, but the fact that 
none of the characters end up being personally fulfilled. I, I think is uh, interesting. And what came, I was asking myself, how would you explain that? Why do you think that's the case? And I said, um, because what's the use of personal fulfillment if you can't live in peace with your neighbor? (laughs) I kind of feel like that sort of sums up the story. So in a, in a big way, it's about self-preservation and that self becoming very, very much a, well, I guess what's interesting about this story is that self is not Wangani and that self does not come through with any one character. It perhaps comes through most with the city as itself. Yeah, cities reproduce themselves right, through their people. That's and true. And so the peace is maintained. <laughs> uh-huh, yes. And by the way, the name of that should just soon story, at least translated in English, is one evening in the rainy season or yes. one evening in the spring rains. So yes. something like that. There um, are three stories that have not all by Shizuzun, but all written in that same era that have a very similar title. And ah, somebody's getting them mixed up. Right. Yeah, that's that's just not fair when that happens. Um, <laughs> I will rattle off what my favorite Shanghai in fiction that I've come across so far is. Two of two of the close runners up at were actually in the mega crossover part two episode I did. One was Shanghai Foxtrot by Mu Shi Ying, another modernist Shanghai guy. And then there was mm-hmm. Sealed Off by Alien Chang that I mentioned. But I'm gonna give the prize to a novel, or maybe it's a novella, uh, a Zhong Pian. Um, what's it called? Sai Jun's um well, Sai the, the English translation in in its publication is called the child's past life the book's mm-hmm. title in chinese is so much better it's uh shong se he, like life death river i.e it should have been called in english the river of life and death because that's 10 times cooler and that's a better description of what the plot is it's about um a guy who is murdered he's a teacher in a school he lives on a school campus he gets murdered we don't know why but then he's reincarnated in a little boy a, you know sort of the omen style creepy little boy who's too worldly for his years and we follow him and the sort of the mystery is solved and revenge is well perhaps revenge is had and it's set around bloody hell what's it called suzhou creek suzhou he which is this little sort of small river that runs through shanghai and marks an important boundary and that was one of my favorite spots in shanghai Tsai Jun, the author, has a short story in the book of Shanghai just called Suzhou He, which is another time-warping, haunting depiction of, of the creek, Suzhou He. And yeah, it just felt like, it maybe it helps that I lived on a school campus as well when I lived in Shanghai. Um, yeah, I, I never got, say. didn't get murdered, uh, was not reincarnated, but just the vibe. As far as I know, Yeah. It was the the novel was very plot and character driven, but like the little snippets of like the setting were were um were really nice as a way to be there without being there, uh, Wang Anyi style. It's interesting that you mentioned the rivers because the editors of this collection also point out that that's one thread that ties all seven stories together is they all feature a river. Although I don't really remember what the river. <laughs> I don't really, really remember the river in this particular story. Yes, I'm calling bullshit on that, at least for this story. <laughs> There's no river. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But um, Wang Ani herself in, the, in her acceptance speech t- for the Newman Prize says, um, 
consciously or unconsciously, we are always nudged along by such currents, and they are a good thing, moving us along with the stream, or else propelling us forward against it. These forces push you out onto the road, and once you are on your way, you can go anywhere. All right. There, that that works. That works for yeah. by the river anyway. It's definitely true. Shanghai is a river city, but uh, yeah. it there's no no river in sanctimonious Cobbler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it yeah, I guess rivers are a thing in lots of cities, but a country like China where canals are so important as well, that's got to be a thing. Um, we could. I'd love to talk more about bodies of water in Chinese cities, but I'll take us to the miscellaneous section instead. Uh, first miscellaneous question for you. Is there a Chinese word of the day you'd suggest for the sanctimonious cobbler? Um, well, I, I think I'm going to go with what we discussed before, Right. This is one I will not have to ask the characters for, although I'm going to have to rely on uh, auto keyboard giving me the right PN. Magic. Okay, so I guess we don't really need to explain that one very much. The novelette. The no- I really want to know what in the world is a novelette. Um, I know that Be- at least the translation of Beijing, Folding Beijing, Beijing Judia by Hao Jingfang is referred to by um, Ken Liu, the translator. And I think the original publisher and translation, Uncanny Magazine, they call it a novelette. And mm-hmm. I think that's because it is basically like a, either a very long short story or a very short novella. So it sits, right. at least in the English world, would be landing somewhere between novella and short story. Right. See, I, I think our discussion really has prompted me to think of this as like beyond length, beyond form. It's it's either a genre or it's not. And if it's not, then we should just stop using that word <laughs> and, and basically consider it one of those translations that just doesn't work. You know what I mean? Yeah, my my feeling, I don't really know so much about the translations because my Chinese is pretty limited, but my feeling is if an academic is talking about a form, a format rather, a format of media as if it's a genre, then I think they don't understand either what a format or a genre is. Maybe that's not so true for something mega specific like say a haiku or a sonnet. Um, but like to my mind, anything can go inside the placeholder box of a novel or a novella. To, like if I'm going to be really uh, sanctimonious here, I would say someone who thinks that a novella is a genre probably is a snob who doesn't read genre fiction, who understands the full rainbow spectrum of categories of amazing entertaining genre fiction you can get in literature and possibly they are too stuck in thinking of literature as a a form of like education or cultural worthiness rather than entertainment because genres are written to entertain readers and I think a lot of academics basically are badly disconnected from that Hmm. that's my hot take It's a great hot take. It's I think it's a worthy one to be aware of, especially when we're talking about like 21st century Chinese literature in particular. Yeah. I also kind of maybe you might have an inside perspective on this, but um it I find it interesting for for um uh academics like the people who work on CLT 
they do have to sort of juggle two things. They have to be sonologists or three things, even sonologists, language experts, and they need to do like literary criticism as well. Yeah. And I wonder if some, you know, different people have their levels stacked out in different ways where some of them are excellent sonologists, but they basically don't know how to talk about literature properly. Whereas maybe some have ropey language skills, but like me are pretty comfortable talking about literature as literature. I don't know what you think about that. This is a this is a historical problem <laughs> because it goes it boils down to the issue of area studies. Like mm. Chinese studies falls under Asian studies larger, largely, or they're both kind of considered as part of separate parts of cultural studies. And then area studies is then like the umbrella that they fall under. I don't know. It's really difficult to categorize them because the problem is the categorization itself. Like, why do we need to categorize these things? Mm. And that all goes back to the colonial era of how these, you know, disciplines got started in the first place. <laughs> yeah. So th these are language issues. These are um thinking issues as in like theoretical issues but what happens is that you do have people I'm I'm very similar to you I originate or I originally started in English literature I was more on the literary side of things and learning what theory meant or literary criticism in that vein and then you come over to Chinese literature and there's such a heavy bend towards um, historical analysis and putting history on top of literature and like the framework of studying a piece of work mainly through a historical or a socio-historical lens that's the biggest option right mm. <laughs> um, to the point that psychological studies or comparative approaches that don't really take history into account too much they get lost they get lost in it. It's a problem in the field, I would say. Uh, and I, I will only say that I think in the 21st century, now that we're, we're seeing so much different type of literature, and as you pointed out, lots of different genres, apart from like the so-called highbrow critical type of literature, now that we're just seeing a huge diversity of literature, we can, I think, take a lot of different approaches to it. The problem becomes the people who are mostly doing a lot of that critical effort, they're still in the institutions of the universities. And in that institution, you, you belong to certain departments that are named after these, this bygone era, you know? <laughs> and there's just, it's not a limitation per se, but it, it definitely weighs on your mind because what we do is interdisciplinary by nature. It has to be. It has to be. If you're dealing with the socio-historical context of a book, you know, <laughs> there's a lot to take into account. Um, and then the other side of that, I know I've gone on too long already on this topic, but it is a big one in the field. Uh, the other side of it is literary theory or literary criticism in, in general, you know, and applying it to literatures outside of the the. Anglo-Saxon tradition, you also run into the problem of like how to do that, who are you drawing from, and then on top of that with Chinese literature, um, you have like David, uh, 
what's his name? David Derwe Wong, for example. Oh, yeah. I like how he characterizes things because he breaks it down and says there is literary theory, but then there is Chinese literary history. And in a big way, or Chinese literary thought, I should say, Chinese literary oh, yes. And I like that distinction because I think for people like you and me who are coming from the literary side of things, that's where we can go, oh, okay. So it's more about discourse. It's more about the social effect. It's more about the intellectual history. Um, and because of that, the history itself, rather than what happened in the 1960s in Europe and the US, where you start to get these more psycho psychological theories happening as a result of like, post-war thoughts and post-war criticism and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. <laughs> so it's a it's a really different tradition and I think it's important to recognize that if we, especially if we are going to do scholarly work on it uh -huh. um I'd love to again do an episode on all of this I'll just try and close it off with a anecdote something recent I was talking to my girlfriend who um, came out of a PhD on Anglo-Saxon lit. She was doing wolves in Anglo-Saxon literature. And um, we were talking about like her reading and how she noticed sometimes she would be citing uh, an academic who's got a you know European name of some sort, but they're working in a Chinese university in the English department there. And I said, like, yeah, that's, that's not so unusual. English departments are everywhere in China. They'll employ foreigners as well as having local employees and then she said yeah and sometimes there'll be uh just like Chinese academics um at like say Tsinghua or Peking and they are writing about Anglo-Saxon lit and there might even be like a Anglo-Saxon studies department at say Beijing University um or Peking University rather and at first I was like huh isn't that peculiar and then I stopped and thought no why should that be peculiar if you're going to do Chinese studies taught by a bunch of Anglo or Scottish or what or German people in Europe, yeah. then why the hell should it be bizarre to be doing Anglo-Saxon studies in Tokyo or Chongqing with local people there? It's perfectly yeah. justifiable so long as they're serious academics with access to the resources they need to do their studies. Of course, definitely. And if any um, Anglo-Saxon experts of Beijing are listening, <laughs> please get <laughs> Sorry in touch. Sorry we're not calling it English literature. But actually, like here in Malta, so one of the things that's coming up for me is I don't I don't think this is really a plug because it's like basically already set in stone. But there's going to be a conference. It's a it's our first Chinese studies conference that's going to be held here. And the idea behind it was, hey, what does it mean to do Chinese studies outside of a place like China or outside of even a place like the UK or the US, where traditionally a lot of sinologists have been based right yeah. what is Mal malta never set up a concession in shanghai right <laughs> no i mean they were a colonial outpost of britain so how could they uh so what does it mean to do chinese studies here right uh there's there's i think some interesting theoretical questions and i'm i'm interested in what will happen at the conference because we're going to have hopefully people from like italy and poland you know kind of um contributing to this conversation so I think the field is changing but I it's it's a little hard to see it I think if you're in if you're based in a let's say British or an American university or yeah. even Chinese university to be honest totally yeah I've, I've had dear how many I think three three different times on the show I've had someone with an Eastern European um like nationality or at least cultural background 
even that's an interesting perspective to get yeah. on Chinese lit. It's you know has a post-communist thing, and it also just is not Anglo. Um, so or it's you know Anglo influenced, but also separate from it. So that's interesting. Anyway, I know I keep saying this. We could we could go on and go on and go on. It's fascinating, but I have to take us to another silly question, and that's the piece of music you pair with the story. So let's say we're making a. I feel like this wouldn't be a feature film. This might be like a sort of made-for-TV one-hour affair, perhaps. If you know, it reminds me of something I've watched before, but I mm. haven't been able to pin down the 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 thing in my head. So that's why I had oh. up till now. Yeah, if we're making the tele the tele movie. For this um for this drama what what piece of music would you pick for the soundtrack i so it's not so much a particular song i struggled with this question to be honest this is a hard one yeah it's real homework it really was but i happened to cross a video about a japanese a j-pop band that well the video i came across was this guy saying they're they're gonna go big. They're gonna go big. We'll see. I don't know, but they're called Yosobi, and it's kind of a duet or a duet group. It's a guy and a girl. So what's interesting about them is that they make music based off of novels. So I think for that purpose alone, this would be a good novel, novella, whatever, to turn into a piece of music. Um, And then I was listening to some of their music today and a couple of them had, like there was, there's one called Monster... I don't know how it's pronounced in Japanese, but in Chinese, it would be guai wu. <laughs> uh, that's what you could search it under in YouTube. But I felt like those lyrics were, they were reminding me of the cobbler, which was kind of cool. And then there was a different song called The First Take, which I felt could be Gandhi's perspective on things. So I felt like there was both of those there. And then just by sound, I think... Well, sound-wise, I feel like their music fits more into like an anime style, like what you would hear in anime. But that being said, these kind of zoomy, overlooking, um, you know, bird's eye view perspectives, I think are reminiscent of um, that one, what is it, Kiki's Delivery Service or or that? Oh, yeah. That's a little bit, I feel like it could work. I feel like with this music could work for this, this story. Um, my my choice is, I'm afraid it's Anglo, terrible. Um, it's a Why it's a Japanese song. It's even worse. <laughs> oh yeah, let me just load up my rifle quickly. Get the barbed wire ready. Yeah, so the song I've picked is by a band called Clever Girl, as in like a reference to Jurassic Park, I believe, when they're talking about the Raptors. Um, mm-hmm. And the track is all lowercase, apart from the first letter, no spaces. Oh my God, I love you. Please don't leave me. And yeah, I could be <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
was I was trying to find a band that have that play in a style called like math rock or post rock, which is um, usually kind of good, you know, standard rock band um, lineup. Although I think these guys have like a flute or a saxophone or something as well. There's some more um. gentle instruments in there. Anyone who's heard a math rock band before will know what the kind of sound is. But if you haven't, it's sort of not many guitar chords, lots of individual notes played in a very technical sort of manner. So jumping from note to note, maybe with odd time signatures. But mm-hmm. um technical, um technical, what am I trying to say? Technical notes aside, the tone tends to be sort of gentle, calm, playful, not intense music at all. It's like a contrast of very intense, I guess, fret work. What do they call it? Finger work. Hard to play, but very gentle and peaceful to listen to. Very intricate. Often they don't have conventional song structures. So it goes from like, you know, movement A, B and C rather than first chorus, first chorus. And I just thought that gives you some of the mood of the story where it's not very much tension. The drama is rarely anything very stressful but it might really make you feel something like it did for you. I'll confess it didn't really do that for me, but it did sort of have me daydreaming along. And mm. this this track by Clever Girl is quite daydreamy. So that's why I picked I don't it. I know if it's a good thing that it evoked an emotion. <laughs> uh, I think that is a good thing if a story has a visceral effect on you as a, you know, as a living animal, that it's not just interacting with your mind, but it can make you breathe faster or cry or blush then that's a powerful piece of art I think yeah I think it did all three of those <laughs> excellent that's a, a hat trick for Wang Anyi all right um for our further reading questions um if listeners want more I've said if listeners want more like this book obviously we could do this two ways. We could say if listeners want more like the Sanctimonious Cobbler, where would you direct them? Or if they just want more like By the River, uh, where would you send them? I, to be honest, I did not prepare for this question, so I don't really know. I mean, it's obviously okay. other Wang Ani stories come to mind because I feel like that's just obvious. <laughs> mm, I would say the Book of Shanghai is quite a good go-to because you'll okay. get lots of different stories set in shanghai all different styles some are a slice of life some um there is something a bit more uh, heightened or exciting going on but all of them give you a flavor of shanghai and a, a fair number of them it's this sort of on the street level working class and or ordinary person sort of perspective small things of daily life not all of them are like that but yeah that's definitely there in book of shanghai but yeah otherwise I can't think of anything mega specific again, because this isn't always what I look for in my reading, but maybe also because possibly this is a little different from what often gets translated to English from Chinese, you know, because it's, you know, it's just a slice of life. It's not about anything of great note that a translator or a publisher might latch onto. That's true. Yeah. To, to imagine it as a standalone piece would be rather tricky. Definitely. In that we're talking about bodies of water, uh, I have I didn't read this book recently, but a couple of years ago I read *The Hungry Tide*, which is a novel <laughs> um, by Amitav Ghosh, and he's it's set in Bangladesh. He's Bangladeshi. It's that's a great novel, um, great story. Also has 
a really good love story at its core. Uh, but it's it's not like your typical romance. It's one of those where two people from very different walks of life, kind of similar to this in some ways. Well, they're not really from different walks of life, but they're embedded in very different lives, right? And that's what happens in The Hungry Tide as well. Um, they have an experience together that definitely has love, desire, romance at its core, but it the story itself is not about that. So in that sense, it has this really emotional, like the the waves that come mimic the water. It's very emotional in that way. And it's called The Hungry Tide. Yes. Okay, It's cool. a very good book. Written beautifully. Yeah, now I'm trying to think of anything not Chinese I've read reminds me of this story. I, I think again, though, I just don't read an awful lot of stories like this, so I can't think of anything that leaps to the forefront of my mind as being similar another book to name drop it's the one you're reading right now what what are you reading just now the book that i'm reading right now is called the dictionary of lost words is that a fiction or a non-fiction it's fiction it's historical fiction um it's basically about it it's a story, a fictional retelling of how the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary came to be. And it's because it's a historical or sorry, a fictional retelling, because it's a fictional retelling, it's it centers on a girl, basically the daughter of one of the compilers. And she kind of gets caught up in the trade as well, but because she's a girl, the idea is that there are these words that she comes across that don't always get included in the dictionary. Mm. Uh, so I'm only halfway through, <laughs> but basically it's her keeping a record of these words, these domestic or women's words, right? But if we weren't supposed to be getting near the end of the conversation, I would take us down a rabbit hole of saying that's something we didn't talk about Um for this story by Wang Anyi is whether it's um, it's women's feminine domestic writing. Because I think I saw on her Wikipedia page, there has been discussion as to whether that's what she writes, sort of women's okay. perspective. Is it feminist because it's more domestic? Body, body, well, there's blah. There's a whole conversation there, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Next time, maybe. Yeah. Um, I'll say what I'm reading as well. Uh, I'm reading it's impossible to connect with this really other than that it's short form writing and it's in a collection it's uh, casting the runes by mr james so it's like weird ghost stories by a posh english man not much to say really other than they're pretty good um if, sound good. i feel like the last time we talked you were also reading ghost stories <laughs> yeah it might have been different ghost stories this is my <laughs> first time reading at mr james but yeah it's the same it's the same uh, phase in my life as a reader. Sure. It's just a phase that's been going on a while. Yeah. Uh, this is part of a new phase, not really a new, kind of a return phase for me as well. Because right before I read this book, I read Girl with a Pearl Earring, or I should say reread, because I had read that in high school. So I guess, in, and this book follows kind of a teenage girl. And so in some way, it's like, I don't know why I'm past that age but i am revisiting these ideas <laughs> mm -hmm. i've realized as i get older there's more and more stuff to revisit you know and sure. the gap in time between then and now becomes longer so yeah. all the more reason to to revisit them see them yeah. with new eyes definitely and i think that especially for like girl with the 
girl earring. That was a really interesting one to revisit because at the time I read that as like this, like this wow kind of romance, you know, and now reading it, I'm like, okay, yes, been there, done that. Not the most exciting thing. <laughs> I'd much rather read a Wang Ani novel than that type of, um, although they're similar in some ways. I mean, I, I'm not going to go into it. They're similar in some ways, but there's a really different perspective when you're dealing with middle-aged characters compared to teenage characters. And at, and the girl who wrote Girl with a Pearl Earring was a teenager when she wrote it. Although she wrote it in a very sophisticated way, she was, it's very good, but still it does come from someone who hadn't had those life experiences yet. And I think there's a real difference in terms of depth that Wang Ani is able to reach because of that. Because she's been on the planet for a reasonable number of decades by this point. She's been, she's been a woman (laughs) on this planet for a number of decades. She knows how to, you know, hit those points. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, speaking of hitting points, is there anything we've not touched on yet that you'd like to mention about this story or about anything else? Not off the top of my head. <laughs> mm, yeah, no doubt after I hit stop, though something will. Yeah, will, probably. Uh, or, but no, or... yeah, I think the conversation has gone really well and I've I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> it's always nice to talk to you and talk about books and writing and Chinese literature. Yeah, and it's nice to have a returnee uh, guest. I'm thinking of at least temporarily wrapping the show up at episode 100, and this is 82. Really? So it's, yeah, so doing the mass, I'm not going to bring back every guest as a returnee unless I cram them all in together. So I was going to ask you about that. At this stage, I was going to ask you either off or on the show, but like, what's the plan for the podcast now? Yeah, I don't think I talked about this uh, on on into the microphone. When I I'm gonna do some kind of uh, I don't know if I'm gonna do it from like episode ninety to hundred or ninety five to hundred or just the last one. I'm gonna go out with some kind of a bang or special format, and then keep the feed up live, but go do other stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Get my driver's license. Um, <laughs> maybe get some HSK Chinese qualifications as oh, well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that might be more viable than driver's license because cars are expensive. We'll we'll see about Don't that. <laughs> one or one or the other or both, and then I suspect I'll come crawling back to okay. up for the next one hundred episodes. Okay, that's. Oh yeah, I'm going to try and write some fiction as well. Um, so lots okay. of side projects, and then maybe get some more translated Chinese lit under my belt so that I have a great big buffer, so that when mm-hmm. I'm doing when I come back to the show. I don't have to be constantly reading more stuff as raw um, material for the show, if you see what I mean. Oh, interesting. Yeah. The other you thing mean I'm, like digging deeper into things that you've already read? No, I just mean literally reading stuff, reading books and short stories so they can be topics for the show. Oh, 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 oh. got it. Like getting yeah, yeah. a reservoir. I get it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Although actually the other thing I've thought of doing, you know, this far in the future when I've made it past 100 and then come back is um, maybe only doing short stories so that Mm. I don't have to half the novels I read have to be translated from Chinese and also I'm thinking I might try and make it a two person show so have a co-host so that I don't have to bring a guest on every single time Sure, sure, sure. because that slows me down a lot like it's 
kind unless you're a real genius or do it full time, having a guest on every single episode and doing it regularly is I can that's, a, that's a nightmare. Um, so that might be another thing I do, but I'd have to find someone who's um, game for that. Right, right, right. <laughs> so thank you for coming on the show, Lehilo. Thank you. It's been great. All right, we've reached the end of the episode. All that remains really is the plugs. So follow us on Instagram at Trichofic, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. Also follow me on Twitter at Angus Likes Words. There's a Discord you can join. There's a link for that in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon and also various other ways you can support the show. But the Patreon is maybe the best because $1 a month and up gets you access to all the bonus shows I put out. We've got donkeys worth of those. Loads and loads and loads. Of course, the very best thing you can do for the show is to spread the word. Tell your friends, tell your teachers, tell your lecturer at Fudan University, and most importantly, tell your neighbour that you're spying on and are considering starting an affair with. And on that underhand note, I will say, Saijian. Jian. <laughs>